many people wonder, why does Jesus go all the way north to Caesarea Philippi? And uh, you'll see, uh, not that you can see it on the, 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 there's a map there. You see how far north Jesus takes the guys. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus takes them to Caesarea Philippi. There's a whole lot of things we miss because we, we don't live in the first century and so there's a whole, and we, we're not familiar with the geography, but there's a few things about Caesarea Philippi that I, I think it's not an accident. I actually think Jesus had taken them across to get supplies uh, in, the, in the last bit we were talking about and now takes them on this walk up to Caesarea Philippi. A couple of things about Caesarea Philippi, it was named by Herod Philip, who was the son of Herod the Great. Uh, he named it after himself, a little bit, you know, egocentric. Uh, he, he named it Caesarea after Caesar and Philippi after himself. Uh, and he sort of linked himself with Caesar. And actually, he had all these coins minted with him on one side and Caesar on the other. Part of the reason it was named Caesarea Philippi was that his dad built a big... Uh, well, it's really a temple to Caesar there at Caesarea Philippi, right next to another temple. And we've actually got an artist rendering of both these temples that were there at Caesarea Philippi. Uh, the other temple was a, a temple to the god Pan, uh, who was the god of fertility. He looked a little bit like, you've seen, the, um, there, there it is, it's the, the, both temples kind of side by side, and the temple to the god Pan uh, is, is still there, it's all wrecked, but there's a, a, a monument that says what's happening there. There's a, the, the temple to the god Pan is there, uh, and they sort of were side by side. And I, I think it's not an accident that Jesus took the disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, because Caesarea Philippi was known for these two temples, the temple to the Roman gods and the temple to the political gods. And what is the question that Jesus asks? We can take that down now, Jen. What is the question that Jesus asks his followers as they get up to Caesarea Philippi? What does Jesus ask the disciples? Yeah, who do people say I am? He's saying... Here are the gods of this culture. Who do people say I am? He actually says to the disciples, he start, and, uh, and Peter comes and says, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah. And then Jesus asks the core question for the disciples, and I want to suggest Jesus is asking you this question this morning. Who do you say I am? So Jesus has waited to ask this question till he was this object lesson with these gods in the background. I actually think one of the most important questions for us is what are the gods in the background of our life? What are the gods that are in the background of our life? A God is something that orders your priorities. It's the, something that is the, the most important thing that organises your decision-making. 
So uh, in those days, people would uh, give money to Caesar and, and there would be this sense that they would, they would certainly organise their, their lives around Caesar and they would give offerings and give their resources to the other gods and this pan was the, the god of fertility and, and I was about to say, he looked a bit like Mr Tumnus off C.S. Lewis is what uh, Pan looked like, is what he, this strange looking uh, god they call the god of fertility. But for you, what are the gods that impact your life? What are the gods in our world? We don't talk about it like that but if it's true that the gods are the things that organise our priorities... I want to take a moment, let's chuck up this question, I want to take a moment to actually talk about this because I think this is really important. What are the gods of our day? If you've got your phone, you can use your phone to use the, the QR code and put in your answers. Uh, we want to, and if you, if you don't have your phone, I encourage you to ask the people around you for their answers and put, put their answers in for them. So we want to take a moment, and if you're at home, uh, we want to encourage you to do this as well. Uh, and if you're at Lena Valley... We want to get as many answers as we can. We want to actually wrestle with, okay, what are the gods of our day? Because I think Jesus, like he was back then, is standing in front of the gods of our day and saying, who do you say I am? So, but before we get there, let's see if we can answer for us. What are the things that you are tempted to organise your life around? What are the things that ask for your allegiance and let's put, put them in and let's see what we say the gods of our day are. Let's chuck them up. Let's see what answers we've got so far as we, as we go for this. Interesting, isn't it? It didn't take long to find the central theme. Uh, I like the icon, somebody's having fun with the... Uh, someone's putting their hands up and going, I don't know. Uh, sport, family, work, success, career. Let's keep, keep wrestling with the question. If you're, if you're to be honest, what are the, the gods that vie for your attention? What are the things that, that you're tempted to prioritise over God? It's just helpful to, before we engage with Jesus' words, it's helpful for us to, to keep wrestling with this. Right? Really helpful to see... It didn't take long for money to get right to the centre, did it? Uh, incidentally, I released a video yesterday about the whole question of tithing and what that's about, just because it's actually become a controversial thing amongst Christians lately about whether Christians should tithe or not. And so I didn't want to take a whole Sunday to unpack it and where it all came from, so it's there if you'd uh, like to engage with that question. We're get, I'm going to come back to that list uh, at the end of this message and I'm gonna, we're going to do communion a bit different today, just a heads up. We're going to mix things up a bit. So, uh, like I, I said though, I, I believe that uh, the most important question of your life is, who do you say Jesus is? There are all kinds of gods vying for your attention. And fundamentally, as a follower of Jesus, what you are saying, what Troy said as he went into the water and came back up and said, I, I don't want those gods to set my agenda. I want Jesus to set my agenda. That's what baptism is saying. It's the start of the Christian journey. 
I appreciate uh, the work of C.S. Lewis. He's someone I keep coming back to. Uh, he said, your answer to who Jesus is is fundamental. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And he says that really foolish thing is that they're ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. And so Peter says, you are the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You are the one we've been waiting for, is what Peter says to him. I wonder who Jesus is for you. Like I said, I think it's the most important question of your life. We then get into one of the most controversial bits of the Bible, uh, verses 17 and 18. There's been lots and lots of written about these two verses where Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You might think, what's so controversial about that? Uh, well, uh, the Catholic Church have used this to say that uh, Peter was the first pope and was infallible and there's a whole lot of stuff that comes back to this verse. Uh, it's interesting that they try and use this to say Peter was infallible because we'll see what happens next but it doesn't hang, hang, hold water for very long. Uh, but, and I don't think what's clear, there's two things that are clear in this. The first thing is this. Jesus is emphasising that Peter isn't special because he's clever. He says to him, this wasn't revealed to you by you being smart, by flesh and blood. This was revealed to you by God. And that's exactly what he has told the disciples in John 6, where he says, no one comes to the Father unless God draws them. Well, I, so, it's been so encouraging for me to see the way God has been actively working in people's lives and, and drawing them to himself. Uh, for me, it's been so encouraging having conversations with Troy uh, and, and Matt and others who just have, where it's, it's like God sort of scruffed them and taken them on a journey. And, and 
And, that, and that's what Jesus is saying to Peter. He's saying, you're not particularly smart, mate, but God has revealed something to you. And we've got to watch any kind of pride that says, uh, this is a very special leader. And I don't think Jesus is leaving room for anything like that. Then he also says, just in case people are worried that uh, Peter is somehow responsible for building the church, Jesus says, no, and you are Peter and his, his name means rock. And what he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is doing the building of the church, not Peter. And we are in dangerous territory, honestly, for me, uh, I was involved with a mission organisation for 20 years and one of the things I have learnt is uh, the hard way that whenever you think uh, God's lucky to have you, uh, whenever you think you are the centre of God's action here on earth, whenever you think you are building God's church, you're in dangerous territory. Jesus says, no, I'm building my church. But it is true. Uh, some people, there, there are versions of this that would want to say uh, that some, he wasn't referring to Peter as an important foundation of the church. The most logical reading of this is that, yeah, Peter was an important part of the foundation of the church. Uh, it was Peter who was sent to the house of Cornelius in the book of Acts and, and opened the door for the Gentiles to come in. So Peter actually had a pretty important role and I think Jesus is saying, mate, I'm going to use you, but it's not because you're particularly clever. And Peter is about to demonstrate that in just a minute. Now, he, he actually goes on and he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. It's almost like he's been waiting for the disciples to get it, for this foundational moment where the, someone looks into the eyes of God and knows what they're looking at. And he's been waiting for the disciples to get it. And now he says, okay, here you go. Here's the keys. Now, it's clear the disciples don't actually understand what he's talking about here uh, because in Matthew 18, he says exactly the same sentence again and then he says, wherever two or more of you agree on earth, it'll be done for you by my Father in heaven. Whether two or, two or more of you are gathered in my name. One of the things we have to come to terms with in our individualistic approach to faith is that there is a role and there is authority given to the church. We, we want it to be about our personal journey with Jesus, but Jesus makes it really clear you're not meant to, you're not meant to just trust your own capacity to have your own relationship with God. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that we are meant to be one body with many parts and that we together are being built together to be God's temple. There is something fundamental and foundational about relationship. Jesus is saying here, there is, I'm, I am delegating authority, which is pretty, pretty scary, isn't it? It is pretty scary that Jesus is delegating authority to his church. There is a responsibility where the church have. 
And what does it mean? What does it mean to have Jesus delegate authority to you? What's the very next line uh, in verse 21? What does what Matthew have, have written there in verse 21? What's, what's, it, what's it say? What's that, Pete? Yeah, well, actually, it, it, you're right. He said it's from that time on. That's why I don't think taking them up to Caesarea Philippi was an accident. Jesus was preparing them for this moment. And the only other time in Matthew it says from that time on is at the start of his public ministry in chapter 4. So it's like he's taken a, a whole approach to ministry and now that changes and now you can actually track his journey on a map. He actually starts walking towards Jerusalem and to the cross. And he, for the first of four times, tells the disciples what they don't want to hear. And it's also what you don't want to hear. He says this, From that time on, Jesus began to, to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And it's clear the disciples didn't want to hear this, so much so that this man that people want to argue sometimes is infallible uh, gets to Jesus and says, hey, hey Jesus, come here for a minute. Are you, no, no, you're wrong. Sorry about that. No, no, the PR, we, we've done our PR and, uh, and, and that doesn't have to happen. Peter actually rebukes Jesus. Brave move uh, to rebuke Jesus. I think you might have got, got some confidence from the Canaanite uh, woman a, a, few, a few days earlier. I don't know how, but it didn't work out for him as it worked out for her. Jesus, what's Jesus' response to Peter as he tries to say, no, no, you're wrong. What, is, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Pretty full on, isn't it? I think there's a few things at play here, but I think what it shows you is the weight that Jesus knows he has to carry. And I bet you there's part of him that wishes what Peter was saying was true. In fact, he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, I don't want to do this. And so for him, it's like Peter in being a friend is actually being the mouthpiece of Satan and saying, Here, here's a burden you don't have to carry. When Jesus knew, yeah, no, this is a burden I do need to carry. He actually says... You are a stumbling block to me. This one he's just called the rock has positioned, he said, look, this is the kind of rock you are at the moment for me, mate. You're a stumbling block. And what does he say? You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus is living out what he's taught the disciples in Matthew chapter 6. What Jesus has taught the disciples in Matthew chapter 6 is this. Don't worry about stuff. 
Don't worry about human concerns. Don't worry. Can we have that list up again just briefly? Uh, Again, we're going to put it up again soon. So, but don't worry about any of this stuff in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is saying, but, you can take it down again. Thanks, Dale. But seek first the kingdom. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is anywhere God's in charge. It's, a, it's, it's the same word. We, the English word, we get the words king's dominion. It just means God's in charge. So God's kingdom, at the end of the service, we're going to pray, your kingdom come. And what we're praying in that is, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's, what, God's, what, that's what it means to seek first the kingdom. It means handing the steering wheel of your life over to Jesus. And Jesus says to the, the disciples, Peter, you, you, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You're focusing on human concerns. You're not focusing on the kingdom. I showed you, I taught you, and you haven't yet heard and encouraging me to avoid the pain. You are calling me away from God's plan for my life. What does it actually mean to seek first the kingdom? Brace yourself. Jesus now brings a teaching that he teaches, one of the few things that's in every single gospel. All four of them say it over and over again. In fact, in one gospel, he says it twice. And it's not something that you really want to hear, but it is the truth. And it's this. Whoever wants to be my disciple... Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What does it mean to seek first the kingdom? It means to live your life in the shape of a cross. It means being willing to not put your desires first, but being willing to follow Jesus and his plans. One of my uh, mentors through books is a fellow by the name of N.T. Wright, and he puts it this way. He says, because Jesus bore the cross uniquely for us, we don't have to purchase forgiveness again. It's been done. But because, as he himself said, following him involves taking up the cross, we should expect, as the New Testament tells us repeatedly, that to build on his foundation will be to find the cross etched into the pattern of our life over and over again. We would rather this were not so, and we twist and turn to avoid it. We find ourselves in Gethsemane saying, Lord, can this really be the way? If I've been obedient so far, why is all this happening to me? Surely you don't want me to be feeling like this. Sometimes, indeed, the answer may be no. It's possible we've taken a wrong road and we must now turn and go by a different way. Well, it's important to understand suffering in and of itself isn't virtuous. 
God doesn't love suffering. God doesn't design you to suffer. But we are in a broken world. And in this broken world, the shape of love is the shape of a cross. Or to put it another way, N.T. Wright says, the Christian vocation, the Christian mission, is to be in prayer, in the spirit, at the place where the world is in pain. And as we embrace that vocation, we discover it to be the way of following Christ, shaped according to his messianic vocation to the cross. With arms outstretched, holding with one hand to the pain of the world, stepping into the places of pain, not avoiding them, stepping into the places of pain in your family, in your workplace, in our society, not avoiding them, but with the other hand reaching out to God and living in the gap between the pain of the world and the love of God. And that is the shape of a cross-shaped life. This world says, avoid the pain and avoid God and just have your arms wrapped around yourself. It doesn't, I mean, we've all tried it. It doesn't lead to happiness, does it? Can we have that list up again, Dale? If you like, feel free to organise your life around one of these gods. My guess is you've had a, you've had a few goes at it, haven't you? Have there been times where you've tried to organise your life around one of these gods? What you need to understand is the pain of the world is caused by people organising themselves around this stuff. And the pain in your life is often organised, is often caused by people organising themselves and you organising yourself around this stuff. You take it down again, thanks, Dale. Jesus finishes this by saying, if you can be faithful and hang on, I'm going to come and I'm going to reward you. It's, I'm coming. It's, life's going to be fantastic. He, says what he, he lands it by saying, and he actually says something that has often been confusing for people. He says, some of you who are hearing me right now are not going to taste death before you see me coming in my glory. And people are going, oh, that didn't happen because, you know, he hasn't come back. Well, actually, it's not an accident that Matthew then talks about the transfiguration, which Laurie will be talking about next week. And then, he, then of course, Jesus comes back from the dead, the resurrection, and then we see Jesus go to the, be with the Father at the right hand in the way he said, in, as he quotes Daniel. But as we come to the end of this, we, can, we want to do communion a bit differently this week. Uh, if you're at home, I encourage you uh, to, ha to have your communion stuff handy, uh, but don't open them if you're here. You may, if you've opened it already, you may need to grab another one. So what I want you to do is take it home. What I, want, what I want you to do is take it home. Uh, and Dale, can we have that list back up again? No, not that one, that one. Yeah, thanks. These, Jesus took people to the temples to the false gods. 
And he said, who do people say that I am? Who do you say I am? I wonder which one of these things for you is the false God that's most likely to get you. It's most likely to get you focused on the wrong thing. Thanks, Dale. We can put it back down again. We're going to post this, that list uh, on Facebook later this afternoon so you can see it. What we'd encourage you to do is take your communion cup. You don't have to make a big deal of it. Like for you, if it's shopping, you don't have to make a big deal of this. But what we'd encourage you to do is take your communion to the site of the temple that most sucks you in. If it's family, take it to the dinner table. If it's TV, take it to the TV. I don't know what your poison is, but and, and if it's the shopping centre, you don't have to get the whole shopping centre to stop for communion. It's okay. But I would encourage you to take your communion there and quietly take communion. Because when you take, eat the, the, the cracker and drink the blood or drink the, the, the juice that are symbols of Jesus' blood, what you're actually doing is saying, Jesus, not my life but yours. I live for you, not for this false God. I dare you. I dare you to take communion in front of the altar to the false God that is most likely to get you. It's going to take some thinking and some courage and you don't have to make a big deal of it for everybody but what we'd also love you to do if you're courageous enough, we have a closed Facebook group that's only available to people who are part of our church. What we'd love you to do is just take a picture of the communion cup with whatever the God is or whatever the temple is in the background. It doesn't have to be too obvious, but just post the photo on the Facebook group. So this is something in this coming week we do together, where we together declare that Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't and Pan isn't and the shopping centre isn't, and my family isn't, and my bank account isn't, or the TV isn't, or, my, or the chocolate isn't. Whatever it is, the question for us is, who do you say I am? And if we're not willing to face the false gods, if they're the ones setting our agenda... then we shouldn't be surprised that we're not experiencing the life that is only available through Jesus. I think there's a journey for us as a church to take, there's a journey for us each individually to take, and can I encourage you, uh, please, don't just write this off, take this away, and you, and you, and you don't have to be too obvious about it, like if... if if it's something you're a bit embarrassed about, that is the God that has been determining stuff for you, just take a photo of the cup in, in a, with a, something blurry in the background, that's fine. But this is something we do together. This is something we do together. And together we say, Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, and we want to organise our lives around you and not around anything else. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the way you took the disciples up to that 
place where there's these false gods there and you ask them the question. We know, Jesus, that you're asking us the question. Help us have the courage to look to you in the foreground with these false gods in the background. If these false gods have been setting our agenda in unhealthy ways, Jesus, help us renounce them and help us declare that you are Lord. Again, thanks for Troy and the, 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 the declaration he made through baptism. Help that be a reminder to each one of us who've been baptised that we have said in front of our brothers and sisters, we want to follow you with all our lives. and We don't want other stuff to be God. Help us, Jesus. Have the courage to stop playing games and truly lay our lives at your feet, to truly take up our cross, to step into the pain of the world and hold on to your hand and be ready to follow you into the world this week. We ask this in your name. Amen.